1: Well, this pandemic has created a whole new set of consumer behaviors as it relates to eating meals. A lot more people are cooking in, but a lot more people are ordering out. To get a sense of what that means for the pizza business, we welcome Rob Lynch. Rob's the president and CEO of Papa John's Pizza. Rob, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us a sense of how your business has evolved over the past couple of months as the pandemic has really gripped the country and people have become more and more quarantined.
3: Hi, Paul. Thanks for for having me. You know, our business is built to help in these uh, uncertain times. We are an off-premise, delivery-focused business. We do not have uh, very many dining rooms to speak of. Um, So this is kind of what we do. And we saw the the challenges that were were coming into uh, North America um, through our global business. We have we operate in over fifty countries, both including China and South Korea. Some of the the countries that were impacted first, and we started. You know, we were able to learn what it would look like, and and you know what we realized is that if we were allowed to you know, to continue to operate, that we would have a big responsibility and a, a big demand for our services. And you know, in China, we weren't able to operate as the government uh, shut down, but in South Korea, we were. and and so we took that model and we applied it to uh, you know North America and we we focused on making sure that we had were were prepared for business continuity efforts in, in our supply chain, making sure that we could uh, staff up to to meet the incremental demand and make sure that we had the the appropriate sanitization and, and, and procedures in place to keep our employees safe so that we can continue to operate. And we did that. And, and that was a lot of the work that went on in March as we started to see um, things change. And, and then shortly thereafter, we implemented a a new platform uh, and no contact delivery. And it has made a world of difference. It has allowed our customers to feel confident that when they order food from us, that we're delivering it in a safe uh, way that, that, you know, they can get food. And, you know, everyone's doing their part. People are staying home to try to fight this pandemic. And the only way people can stay home is if they have food. And, you know, the, the frontline workers out there and the grocery stores and our delivery drivers and, and inside team members are doing a doing a great job making sure that, that we can get through this thing and, and fight this terrible pandemic.
1: So what did you kind of see pre and post the quarantine? Give us a sense of kind of how your sales changed once people really were in the lockdown mode?
3: It's a great question. You know, we got off to a really strong start uh, in 2020. We were up about 7% in the, in the first quarter until um, mid-March when we started seeing the initial impacts of COVID-19. And people started to pantry load a little bit. And, um, you know, people really, and the uncertainty um, created a dynamic where people didn't order out. And so, We, we, but we got through that, and and um, and then April hit, and once we got into April, we were about two weeks into the shelter-in-place orders in most states and across the country. um, Our business just took off, and you know, as we reported yesterday, we saw 27% comp store growth. That's that's the best month in the company's history. Um, So you know, we weren't we weren't expecting that level of growth, but we've been able to. Um, manage it, and you know it, it's amazing what happens in business when you get really busy. People get more productive, people step up to the challenge, and our team has just risen to that challenge, and through their efforts out in the field, out in our restaurants, you know our customer service scores were up a thousand basis points over the last six weeks. Um, people really appreciate the fact and the, the extra care that we're taking and the extra efforts we're making to bring them, you know pizza. And, you know, pizza is it's not just sustenance. It's actually a little bit of a return to normalcy. You know, it's a little bit of, right. of, of that joy that, that they, you know, that they're looking for as they um, stay home for, for weeks on end. So it's been a really rewarding thing. Our co- company morale, especially the folks out in the restaurants, has never been higher. And um, it's really been a privilege and an honor to, to help out during these challenging
0: times.
1: All right. So, talk about to us about your employees, your your, your team members here. As, I I'm guessing as you ramped up, you mean? I talk about 27 percent uh, same store sales growth in uh, in in April. You need some more uh, folks on the ground delivering the pizzas, making the pizzas, delivering them. Give us a sense of how you're kind of ramping up and taking care of those folks on the ground.
3: Yeah, you know, it's 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 a really unfortunate outcome of this whole situation. Is these um. High levels of unemployment and and the way it's impacting our communities and, and impacting our country and you know we've we've tried to do our part we've actually hired over twelve thousand people in the last six weeks um, to to try to make sure that we have the staff in place to um, take care of of our communities and frankly it, it's it's been it's been an interesting situation we have people who um you know we're we're in other jobs that had nothing to do with food service that are now coming in and and working in our restaurants and it's been a great dynamic uh them coming in and bringing their talents and their passion and and like i said morale's never been higher these folks are are coming in not just because they think you know i need a paycheck and delivering pizza i mean we try really try to reinforce and i think it's really resonated that these are essential services. These are, you know, this work is important. This work is making a difference. It's allowing the folks to stay home that need to stay home. And so, um, the 12,000 people we've hired over the last six weeks have come in. Our retention has been great, and uh, we're 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 looking for more. I mean, we need we need more people because um, the business continues to, to thrive and. And we want to continue to to get through these times and help out as as much as we can.
1: Rob, talk to us a little bit about the supply chain. Are you able to get all the ingredients you need to keep your process going? We've heard some reports out that, you know, maybe dairy, uh, there might be some supply chain issues, meat, pork, things like that.
3: You know, one of the great things about this company is um, it, it is a vertically integrated company. We we own and operate our own supply chain. And so we have really great relationships with our raw material supplier and our ingredient suppliers. And so once again, we saw how things were transpiring in Asia and then in Europe. And so we got out in front of it we have great leadership in our supply chain and they went out to our suppliers and and procured a lot of inventory heading into um, the pandemic. So we, we significantly increased our inventories. We had to go out and get, Incremental storage space to make sure we could get enough that that if we did see a disruption in to our supply chain, um, we were going to be able to 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 persevere through those disruptions. We also went out and and worked with uh, new suppliers to try and create redundancies in our supply chain and make sure that if something happened to our core group of suppliers, we had backups. And those two initiatives have really paid dividends. We've seen no uh, business impact from um, ingredients um, challenges in, in the supply chain right now. A lot of a lot of protein um, suppliers are are challenged, but we have been able to you know make sure that we have access to all the pepperoni and sausages that we need for those are the biggest proteins in our business, um, and and we've we've got plenty of it, and and we're operating at a high level.
1: Rob, how do you think this is going to play once we get to the other side of this? As it relates to your business, are you th- are you guys thinking about? How consumer behavior may be changing either positive or negative for your business
3: you know this is we we've faced um, multiple economic challenges over the last twenty years if you talk about the dot com bubble you talk about the the banking and real estate bubble back in two thousand and eight and you know I think when those happened, people said you know the world's never going to be the same again and and then the economy recot or recovered. And I think we kind of went back to normal. This is a, this is a health crisis. I think this is, this is going to be different. I think that um, until we have uh, the ability through a vaccine or, you know, even better a cure um, to, to give people confidence in their personal safety and the safety of their families, people are going to, you know, regardless of, of how latent, the um, virus becomes, and, and you know, we we flatten that curve. I think people are still going to have a concern about going out into social environments and and being in close proximity to people that they don't know, and 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 people that could potentially present a risk to them. And that you know, that's a sad thing. Um, you know, uh, I hope that we can get past that, but I do think that until there's there's a way to give them confidence, we're going to see that. And so. I think the, the the dynamic that's in place right now, that's happening right now, where people are ordering almost everything um, through digital channels and it's showing up at their door, and and they are consuming uh, either goods or services or food at, at home. I think that's gonna that's gonna permeate for a while. I think there's gonna be a tail on this, um, regardless of whether or not states open back up or countries open back up, and and um, you know. I hope that we can get past that because uh, I I love the fact that we've got a great entrepreneurial dynamic in the food service industry. And we've got a lot of people depending on um, customers coming back to their restaurants and their dining rooms. And so I hope that we get past that as quickly as possible. But, you know, as long as people are are continuing to rely on uh, delivery and and staying home more often, we'll be there to help
1: out. That was my discussion with Papa John's CEO Rob Lynch. Uh, really talking about the business, how it's changed. They had just a, a surge in uh, delivery activity uh, in April, not surprisingly, but it's up 28 percent, the strongest month in the, in the company's history. So they're, you know, they're hiring more workers, more delivery folks to kind of meet the demand. But really interesting to see how the changing dynamics uh, in the food services business is benefiting uh, certain companies, particularly the ones that really are, are focused yeah. on delivery, like like Papa John. So it, uh, it was a great interview. That. Yeah, it was it really was interesting. interesting. Hear him talk about his business and you know, trying to balance the, the growth of the business with trying to protect uh, the workers as well.
2: It's hard to put into perspective uh, data that really defies historical precedent. And that is the position that we are charged with at this point, looking at report after report that shows millions of Americans losing their jobs in record speed. This morning, we got more initial jobless claims, another 3.17 million individuals filed for claims. The question is, how quickly will this recover? How much damage? And for how long uh, will this make its mark on the economy? Joining us now, Danielle DeMar. Tina Booth, Chief Executive Officer and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence, also former advisor at the Dallas Fed, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and the author of the book Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Danielle, I would love your sense right now as we watch a demolition of more than a decade of job creation in less than two months. Do you get a sense of how quickly these jobs can be brought back on?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, we, look, we look on the outside of the country in, in this episode, I think, to figure out what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, wh- whether we want to dispute the, 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 the data on the virus coming out of China is one thing, uh, but the slowness with which the supply chain is coming back online and the reticence on the part of consumers, bearing in mind China is 60% consumption. It, it's kind of—I think—it's kind of a misconception that that China is this um, manufacturing state. It's not. It's 60% consumption versus our two-thirds consumption. Um, but the reticence that consumers are showing, I think, should teach us something about potentially what's going to happen with our own consumers here in the United States. That's going to determine whether or not we have a second wave, a first derivative, if you will, of, of, of layoffs in this country not directly in leisure and hospitality and in restaurants and in things that were impacted uh, singularly by COVID, but more so because of demand destruction and companies feeling that they have to cut costs. Um, Some of those high-skilled workers that nobody wanted to let go of. We used to talk about skill shortages three months ago. Um, So I think that's what it's going to come down to, is whether or not there's a sense of demand destruction that allows for this next wave of layoffs White-collar workers, higher income, to come through. So I'm literally combing through WARN notices on a state-by-state basis every day.
1: So Danielle, that kind of goes to kind of, kind of economic uh, forecasting here. We've seen just in the last week or so, uh, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, kind of suggesting a, you know, kind of we're experiencing a bottom in the economy, and they're even though they're both forecasting kind of dire, dire GDP numbers in the second quarter, they're both looking for a pretty solid rebound. In the third and fourth quarter, is that something that might be a little premature, do you think?
0: You know, I really think that it is premature. And I'm not saying that they, they, they could be right. We could have this U. And I think at this point you're talking about a U. Yeah. You're just talking about a U that you would see in the regular alphabet as opposed to a long, drawn-out U. Um, we, we could see that. It's feasible that we see a lot of demand come back online in, in the third and the fourth quarter. But I think a lot of it's going to depend on people's attitude. I mean, I'm I'm in Dallas, Texas. Our, our stay at home has been lifted. I know that, that there are people that are frequenting restaurants and going about their business and not wearing masks. And, uh, and, and then there are people like me who are still sheltering in place by choice. So I, I think it's going to depend on how consumers... React and whether or not their incomes are sustained. I'll be looking really closely at hours worked tomorrow as well.
2: Danielle, there's a question about whether this time is different than previous episodes of mass job losses, simply because of how big the safety net is. Because the United States has been sending checks to American households with previous incomes below a certain amount, and given the unemployment benefits that have been boosted, and this has led some to predict that demand destruction won't be as deep as people are predicting. Basically, people will have money in their pockets to go and spend when the social distancing restrictions are lifted. How much do you buy into that argument?
0: Well, I think, you know, there have been some great stories uh, about um, owners of small businesses who've received PPP loans and gotten severe backlash from their employees because their employees are like, no, 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 no. We want those unemployment. We we want to be on unemployment insurance. We're going to make more money with that extra $600 a week. Um, So there's something to be said about people wanting to stay on the sidelines because they're going to be drawing a higher income. We saw when the first round of stimulus checks went out that there was a spike in, in TV sales, in, in, in widescreen TV sales. I mean, it, it's, it's a fact of life that Americans like to consume. If they have the means with which to do this, uh, that's great. The, but what I'm focused on more is is whether or not they're going to be able to go up the consumption If they're going to sustain their lifestyles or whether or not we're going to be able to bring 25% of Airbnb's workforce back online, if we're going to be able to bring Uber's workforce back online, again, especially Silicon Valley, to see these big employers relent, I think is unique, and we should be following that closely.
2: Danielle DiMartino Booth, thank you so much for being with us. Danielle DiMartino Booth, the Chief Executive Officer and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence, former advisor at the Dallas Fed, uh, and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Really important right now to to, to understand the scope of job losses. We had uh, Neil Kashkari speaking this morning and talking about how devastating the job losses are going to be, saying it'll take a long time for the economy to recover, saying the number tomorrow will probably be around 16 or 17% with respect wow. to the unemployment rate. But he said, I think the real number is probably around 23 or 24%. It's devastating. And really the question is, how quickly can you get those people back into the labor force?
1: You know, we talk about the economic impacts, uh, you know, resonating from the global pandemic. We talk about some of the big public companies uh, that have been certainly reporting over this past earnings season, but you think about it, it's really the small and mid-sized businesses that are really being impacted uh, directly and, and they have less of a cushion. To get a sense of how the small and mid-sized market, the middle market, if you will, uh, is performing, uh, we're really fortunate to speak with Randy Schwimmer. Uh, he's a founder and head of origination and capital markets at Churchill Asset Management, which is uh, an affiliate of Nuveen. He's also the publisher of The Lead Left. Um, So we're really happy to have Randy with us. So Randy, give us a sense here. I know you guys spend a lot of time working with kind of middle market types of companies. And I'd love to get a sense of kind of, you know, we're six, seven, eight weeks into this pandemic, the economic impact, the job loss, the uh, loss of demand. What are you seeing in your portfolio of companies?
4: Yeah, I'm Paul and Lisa. Thanks for having me back. It's been a wild 60 days. Uh, you You're absolutely right, and uh, we'd love to roll the clock back, but look, all we can do is move forward. Um what we're seeing generally is that I think that the portfolio companies, and there's no better way actually of judging the impact on these companies than looking at not only our portfolio companies but those across the uh, the middle market and direct lenders who uh, who service those businesses. Um, and you can kind of divide them into three groups. The first group is sort of the frontline businesses. Those are the travel and retail, leisure, restaurants and so forth that have been most directly hit. And those, as we've seen, um, are are pretty much shut for business in many cases. Uh, you can just walk through your neighborhoods and, and see that. Certainly the restaurants are, uh, you know, deliver only or pickup only. And so their business is way down. Uh, The next would be the services businesses that supply those frontline businesses, and they're impacted perhaps less so. Um, And then we have businesses that seem to be, you know, uh, fairly intact. Uh, They tend to be in in the service sector uh, areas um, that that we focus on, more defensive businesses in, in IT, for example, keeping the back offices going while we're all working at home. Um, And those businesses seem to be doing pretty well. And that's pretty much the kinds of companies that we've been uh, financing over the last uh, 10 years, 10, 12 years. So, um, but in general, uh, it's it's pretty significant. And you've seen that reflected in uh, the unemployment numbers that just came out.
2: Randy, we've had a lot of conversations about the dry powder that's been raised or some of the uh, funds that have been raised over the past few years to invest in small and mid-sized companies. We've talked also about uh, some excessive risk-taking, but I'm wondering, at this point, what would it take for private debt managers to unleash that Uh, dry capital into a market that's desperate for it, especially as we see that uh, about 52% of U.S. small businesses surveyed by the Human Resource Management Society think that they're going to be out of business in six months if the shutdowns continue.
4: Right. So you've identified clearly the need. And now the question for uh, those of us who are on the front line of financing is, what what can we expect in terms of the next three to six months in terms of performance of those businesses. Now there's some of those, uh, for example, that we know like restaurants and fitness centers that have been completely shut down. it seems like we are starting nationwide uh, to see signs of those kinds of businesses, state by state opening up uh, with definite limitations. Uh, And so it's not all opening up at once and you're not seeing all the customers flooding back. There's going to be social distancing, It's gonna be uh, a slow open rather than a quick one. Um, And so what finance uh, folks like ourselves are looking at is try to get some conviction around where revenues are gonna be. Because if you're going to extend credit to these businesses, you wanna have a fair sense of when they are gonna be opened up, when they're gonna start generating revenues, when they're gonna generate cash flows, and what level are we gonna be seeing? For example, the restaurant business. Is that going to be back up to where it was? We don't think so. That's not a business uh, sector that we, we finance. But I think for those who do, you know, are we going to see 30% of what we had in January? Is it 50%? Is it 20%? So those numbers are very hard to tell. The other thing that's going on is even sectors like healthcare, which, you know, we do a lot of. Some of the physician-focused practices, and you probably have seen this in your daily lives, you can't just walk into your doctor's office for an appointment. You have to, there's telemedicine. Uh, you can do a lot by phone. So, what's the impact of those businesses? They're clearly going to be coming back, just as gyms are going to be coming back, some restaurants. But to answer your question, there are going to be some businesses that um, it's going to be very hard to get conviction over how they're going to be doing. But once that starts to happen, and once we start to see America going back to work, and we get a sense that these companies are coming back then you can model uh, performance on those companies and actually figure out whether or not they're going to pay your loans back
2: too short. Randy Schwimmer, thank you so much for being with us. We'll have to have you back to discuss this as time goes on and we get a clearer sense of some of those future revenue flows as you were talking about. Randy Schwimmer, founder and head of origination and capital markets at Churchill Asset Management and affiliate of Nuveen, also publisher of The Lead Left. If you don't receive it, you should. It is a great compilation of all things having to do with the middle market lending space, uh, the uh, absolute authority when it comes to that.
1: Well, the discussion here as it relates to the pandemic seems to be switching over or migrating or evolving over to when the U.S. economy can open up. How should we open up? And a lot of that is predicated upon the virus itself and and is there a second wave and and so on and so forth. And those are relying upon a lot of uh, models from healthcare, from scientists, Uh, the Real sense though is a lot of uncertainty. Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, he is also the chairman and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Uh, he joins us on the phone here, Barry. So, Barry, thanks so much for joining us. But as we think about this reopening, we're we're really kind of flying blind, aren't we? Because we've never experienced this before.
5: To, to say the very least, the the closest thing we had was the pandemic. Um, just about a century ago, the so-called Spanish flu, and the technology, the medical technology that existed then was so different than today. They had a lockdown, and and you could see in the history books, the cities and states that followed the lockdown uh, suffered a much less substantial second wave. And so we're going to run uh, another – a rerun experiment that was done a century ago to see which states um, really get hit by a second wave, which states flatten the curve, and, and which don't. It, it, it's unfortunately going to be an experiment with real-life consequences.
2: Barry, you recently wrote a column about how models can never get things quite right. And when I talk to economists, we've spoken with a number of thinkers and investors who basically say we're flying blind. We don't know what to expect. And yet by X, Y, and Z, how can people be investing with any conviction right now based on the level of unknowables right now out there?
5: So that's a deeply philosophical question and and I'll try and get <laughs> You give can you two. count on
2: me, Barry, anytime.
5: <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll, let me let me wonk out on you a bit. So, so Please. first we use models constantly. You use models all the time, and the underlying premise of all these mathematical depictions of the world are simply that hey, the future is likely to look very similar to the past. And as long as there aren't any radical changes going forward, we can rely on our models. Uh, Some models, and I use the example of Netflix, hey, when when Netflix uses its model to say, based on your viewing habits against what the rest of our 167 million subscribers like, we're going to predict you're going to like this. If that model goes wrong, well, who cares? You wasted 90 minutes. But in other circumstances, when things that have never happened before happen – the models just effectively lose their mind and you end up with things like negative oil prices or, hey, tomorrow is the BLS BLS, um, employment situation report. There has never been a period in history where 30 million people filed first-time unemployment claims in a month. So whatever comes out of that BLS model, I suspect is going to be not exactly precisely depicting reality because that's the sort of input that breaks models.
1: All right. So, Barry, the models, okay, limited uh, applicability here in this these unprecedented times. So are it, it, investors just simply supposed to just kind of look past this quarter's earnings, look past the second quarter GDP number, look past the unemployment data, and just kind of focus on
5: 2021 and put a multiple on that? 2021, 2022, 2023. Uh, There are lots of variables, the biggest being how soon do we have a treatment, and beyond that, how soon do we have a vaccine. If you live with a high-risk person, an older person, someone with uh, immunosuppression, or any other comorbidities, um, and there is a treatment that comes out, and we're starting to see lots and lots of promising research, well, as soon as that comes out, this is pretty much behind us or, or the process of putting this behind us really ramps, uh, really ramps up. And uh, there was just a piece in the Washington post yesterday about the antibodies found in llama blood seem to be smaller than human antibodies and effectively stopping the virus. So who knows what, what will finally be the magic bullet. Once that happens, we could start looking at 2021 and 2022 and, Philosophically, to, to go back to Lisa's question, the uncertainty issue is, is always a, a misnomer because the future is always uncertain. And during normal times, we do a nice job of lying to ourselves that we think we have some visibility, we think we know um, what the future holds. Go back and look at any of the corporate guidance from any year over the past 100. They are always wrong. They are always incrementally readjusting as they get closer and closer to that date. It's just when a period like this happens, we find it harder to lie to ourselves and we have to admit we have no idea what the future looks like.
2: All right, Barry. Uh, Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management. We've moved from the philosophical. Let's go to the practical. And what we see right now is clearly a profound shift or perhaps an acceleration in the trend uh, away from old business, the old economy. It's the new economy, which is much more reliant uh, to online activity. I'm just wondering how you're advising your clients to invest around that, given the fact that that's being priced in in spades right now.
5: So we don't think that these sort of external events should cause people to fully um, rejigger their portfolio. You should have a financial plan. It should assume a certain amount of risk and a certain target, and you want to stay with that. Uh, if you look at the changes in valuation between the U.S. And, and overseas, all right, if you've been very overexposed to overseas and you want to throw all that back, You can do that. If you've been underexposed to the growth sector, to technology, you can make a change in that direction. I don't see any sort of inflation on the horizon, but a number of people uh, have been making that claim. And just as a little bit of an insurance policy, if you want to buy the Treasury inflation-protected securities, the TIPS bonds, uh, that, that certainly could make sense to a portfolio. I think we're more likely to see deflation than inflation. But hey, you know, you don't complain every year when your house doesn't burn down and you you already paid for fire insurance. So those are the sort of things, little trimming you could do around your portfolio. But think back to events like September 11th or the 87 crash. Those aren't the sort of things that warrant a wholesale um, redo of a portfolio. They should just make you think, hey, am I properly positioned for when we get asked this externality and, and a lot of people are discovering that they weren't properly positioned heading into it and this is as good a time as any to readjust.
1: Hey Barry, thanks so much for joining us as always. Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Also founder, chairman and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management joining us on the phone. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
2: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage.